So I was thinking today as we um, continue the Sunday after Easter, I was thinking about how there have been so many changes um, in my lifetime. And so I was thinking about just what some of those might be. Like, I know the internet existed before I was born, but it wasn't really readily accessible to people, but the internet is accessible to pretty much all people now. I was thinking about how portable phones came out, and you're like going, what, what do you mean by portable phones? I don't mean your cell phone, for those of you under like 30. Um, but what I mean is like your home phone, right? Um, my favorite is when kids see landlines now. They're like, what, you have a phone that plugs into the wall? What is wrong with this? It's not like a charger? No. Right? But we had portable phones. Those were a really big deal because you could talk to people in other rooms in the house. Or when the cord, like it was a big deal when the cord was long when you were little because you could, you know, walk like in the other room and drag the 30-foot cord around the house so that way your parents didn't hear everything you said on the phone. So we're like, what are you talking about? You're much younger than me if that's the case, right? Uh, we used to have things called phone books. They would come in the mail like once a year. And if you lived in larger communities, they were really big. And they'd be like white pages. Those were people. Um, and you could call them and look up their addresses in the phone book. And then there was one called Yellow Pages, and they were for businesses. And you would look up businesses alphabetically or by what they did. It was pretty cool. Um, now you can actually just type it in Google in about two seconds, get it, which is much faster, by the way. But I was thinking about how um, all kinds of other things, like cell phones came out. At first, they were like the size of like big bricks, like shoes up to your face. It's like holding a shoe, and then they got really, really small. They got so small, people were like, hey, I can't read my phone. We need them bigger. And so we're somewhere in the middle of that. Then phones not only could call people, but you could search the internet with them. And we have smartphones, which for most of us were dumb. And so it's like a smartphone for a dumb person. It's a bad combination. Um, and, and like electric cars became a thing. People began to go to outer space who didn't work for NASA. Right? These are all things that have begun to happen in my lifetime. Um, newspapers were really popular when I was a kid, and now they don't come very often. I, don't even, I mean, I, I get an email that tells me the local news even. It's, things have radically changed in my lifetime. And then I started thinking about my grandmother, who's 100 years old. And so here's what's changed in her lifetime, just a few things, right? That um, com- keyboards and computers like, radically changed the world. Um, she, she actually sends me an email almost every Saturday. My 100-year-old grandmother sends an email. Who would have thought that would have ever happened? Um, World War II, the Korean War, Vietnam, Desert Storm, the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, the Cold War, all those took place in her lifetime. Alaska and Hawaii were not states in the United States during her lifetime. Um, Did you know, like, just think about the transformation of televisions, right? By the way, did you know that my grandmother was born? Um, Movies didn't have sound. You could watch them, but you couldn't hear them. I could go on and on and on, and now you can stream a movie on a device called your phone, and you can take it with you. I know, a lot has changed in the past hundred years. But here's the reality. Other changes, those were predominantly technological changes. There's been other kind of cultural shifts and changes. Like one is, um, there used to be a day when most people had pensions. Now you'd like throw money in a 401k and hope Social Security works out, right? Like that's kind of how that works for most of us today. But, But other changes culturally have been even bigger. Right, so beginning in about 325 AD, the time of Constantine and the Roman Empire, we began a series of like things that we'd call it in the Western world, we'd call it Christendom, or the time in which Christianity was the most prevalent religion in the Western world. And that began in 325 and really began to shift dramatically in the 50s and 60s into today, where we would say we live in what we would call a post-Christian world, at least in the Western world. The Eastern world would probably never have claimed to be Christian. 
But why does that matter? What does that mean? Well, here's the radical difference that, that begins to take. That change, that cultural shift, right? And it's predominantly about like Judeo-Christian values, not necessarily, and, and not all values, but some in times of history. But it changes the way we begin to think about what God has done or God is doing because we begin to see the world from different perspectives. And so we begin to think, well, how then do we share the message of who Jesus is in a post-Christian world? Not all changes in the past hundred years, and not even all changes with that are necessarily bad, right? Like, I appreciate indoor plumbing. It's a great thing. I like electricity. I appreciate that if you carry a TV for someone now, they're usually not heavy and take four people, right? There's been some benefits to some of the changes that have happened in our lifetime. But here's where that has made culturally. Did you know that by almost every metric in terms of, like, human flourishing— the world is more prosperous, there is less violence, there is less poverty, there is less hunger issues than at any time in human history, by a mile. Most of us didn't know that. Why don't we know that? Because in 1980, a thing called 24-hour news came out, and so most news we get is negative news over and over again. I mean, we could blame the internet and social media and all kinds of other things, right? We could talk about how those things in general have messed with us. And did you know in the midst of all those really good things, did you know that we are more anxious than we've ever been in human history? Things that used to feel stable don't feel stable anymore. And some of them were falsely stable. They weren't really offering stability. We just thought they did. And, and so here's the reality. We want to create strongholds of safety and security. We all do it, and we will continue to do it because we want something to cling to, to hold on to, that gives comfort in the midst of anxiousness. This is the reality for all of us. Now, I want to be clear. We're talking about anxiousness that is cultural, much more than talking about individuals. Some of us really do have anxiety that is like a medical issue through mental health, and we're not belittling that today. But what if there was a way that we could live as non-anxious people in a world that is anxious all around us? In fact, how do we become people who are non-anxious in an anxious world? What if, in the middle of constant change, there's a way that we could know peace that would surpass our understanding? That there's a way we could find peace in the midst of the constant change and the tumultuous things and the way that things have been revolutionized because change happens at a greater speed and rate today than at any time in human history. So in the midst of a complex, anxious world, what if there was a way we could live as non anxious people. And there was a singular event that leads us to the ability to live as a non-anxious people. We talked about it last week. It is the resurrection of Jesus. It is the single greatest pivotal moment in human history. In fact, it lays the groundwork for us to live as non-anxious people in an anxious world. And so how do we find that peace? What we find is that in John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31, Jesus, having been resurrected from the grave, I know, crazy story, but we believe it's true. Lots of people saw it happen, right? People saw him, talked with him. It's recorded by over 500 people who witnessed it. And here's what we find in John chapter 20, beginning with verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Imagine being the disciples who've gathered in this upper room, this guy they have placed all their faith in, who they've been following for the past three years. They believe he was going to reorient the world, that he was going to set them free from the Romans who had held their nation captive, and they had belief that this was the one God had sent, and yet he'd been crucified. He'd been murdered. He was dead. He'd been put in a tomb. I'm pretty sure that if someone walked in here today and said, hey, by the way, I was killed on Friday and I'm alive today, um, I wouldn't believe them. In fact, I'd find those yellow pages about businesses and find the, the mental hospital to call and put them in. Right? Like, that's what we would be thinking. And they're afraid, filled with anxiousness and grief and fear because the one they entrusted their lives to, the one they were following, he's been killed. And the same people who killed him are going to come after his followers because that's what happened when there was a rebellion. You would take out not just the leader, but all those who were followers of that rebellion because you wanted it squashed and over and done with. And so they are afraid in this upper room, afraid of what might happen. They're filled with Fear and anxiety and uncertainty. In the midst of all of that, Jesus speaks. And here are the words he speaks. Peace be with you. And the kind of peace Jesus is talking about is not the kind of peace that is just absence of violence. It is all-encompassing. Like our very souls, our very who we are, everything about us to know the kind of peace that he is offering. The shalom of God. But here's how we would better translate that. Peace be with you. May God give you every good thing. Peace be with you. May God give you every good thing. When we're talking about the good things here. We're not talking just about you know, stuff, but he says, receive my peace. Right? Not that God doesn't want us to have good stuff. That, that's all fine. But what he's saying is this. I can give you something that cannot be contained. I can give you something, I'm offering something that in the midst of whatever it is you're going through, that by my very presence, the same spirit that raised me from the dead is the same spirit I am giving to you. Receive my peace. May you receive every good thing that God has for you. Can you imagine being them? To go from this position where you're filled with incredible grief and fear and overwhelm because you had your hope in a very particular way that God was going to act. By the way, that is a reminder for all of us to be careful how we expect God to act. Be careful where we put our hope. 
Jesus then says to them this, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Jesus came to paint a radical new perspective of who God actually was. In Jesus' day, much like our day, sometimes all kinds of things are said about who God is, about his character and his nature, and often we get them wrong. And so what Jesus comes and says over and over again, and John records earlier in his gospel, is this, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I'm in the Father, and the Father's in me, and if you come to know me, then I'm in you, right? When you have seen me, Jesus is the embodiment of God in flesh. That's why we use a church word called incarnation. He is the incarnation of God in flesh. And so what he says is this, when you see me, you've seen the Father. In other words, Jesus came to give a new vision of what God's kingdom looks like. In fact, it's argued that that's part of why he was even killed. You probably know the story of Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. You know, but, but here's what also is known about Judas. Right? He was a zealot who longed for God to work to set Israel free and to, to make Israel their great nation again, to make them like they were in the days of David. He longed for this. And so some have argued that maybe Judas, what he was really trying to do wasn't betray Jesus, but he was trying to spur Jesus onto activity. God, if you'll work in the way we want you to work, Jesus, if you will do what I want you to do, you'll set us free. But this is the problem with who God is. He doesn't ever work the way he want, we want him to work. He works out of the nature of who he actually is. And when Jesus says over and over again that God is love, like, here's who God is. God, God is going to bring about his kingdom, but in a radically new way, his new kingdom life that we're invited to see. And then Jesus has, says these words, right? As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Right? Matthew records, and he says it a little bit differently. He says, go and make disciples. He records these words of go and make disciples. Both are probably very accurate, but just different conversations. But it's the same thing. And then we say, rather than go and make disciples, it's as you go, make disciples. As you go about your life, as you live, as you do all these things. And Jesus says to us in this text from John, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Now receive the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That offers new life. So in other words, as you go, as the Father sent me and I am sending you, there is no place you were sent that you ever go and therein lies the problem for many of us, right? Maybe we were a kid, maybe recently, maybe we were young. We prayed some kind of prayer, and we're like, well, hey, I got to you. Forgive me. I want to know you. And then we think, whew, God's done his part. I'm done. And we just go through our life, right? And so then after that, I'll pick myself up by my own bootstraps, by my own strength. I'll do whatever's needed. But then we miss the whole point of what Jesus is trying to say. You never do it alone. Faith is not a single solitary thing where we do in isolation. It is always meant to be lived in community, in connection to God's very spirit. So you and I are invited to live in such a way that we are connected to his spirit in every moment of every day. So there's nothing we do, nothing we can say where he is not present with us. That's the reality for us today. He invites us to know him. Right? This becomes the invitation. This becomes what we're invited to. And it's why we've talked about what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus, to be one of his disciples, to live as a follower of him, to, in, to reorient our entire life after him. We gave this definition several weeks ago, and we'll use it again today. Here's what we said. The first and primary goal of apprenticeship or discipleship to Jesus is learning to live in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Spirit. 
consustainable awareness of and connection to the Spirit. So we can know the kind of life, the kind of peace that he offers. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits, the beginning of what God has invited for all you and I to experience. The new life that we can find through him. But it's easy to become anxious about all the aspects of our life, all the things that are going on, and allow those to distract us from being more and more connected to his spirit. It's why, in many of Jesus' teachings, right, we could talk specifically about the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 25 to 34, this section on do not worry. Right, what's he say there? Don't worry about today or tomorrow. Right, each day has enough trouble of its own. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. In other words, in the middle of all the anxieties of your life, the tumultuous things that we experience, if you will seek God first in the middle of all these things, you'll begin to keep in perspective the world in which you live. Or Matthew 11, when he says this, Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Where do you and I find rest? The more connected to the Holy Spirit we are, the more we can become the non-anxious presence of Jesus in the world. Because Jesus is the embodiment of a non-anxious presence. That's who he is. All right. Easier said than done, right? Fair. So I want to read a quote to give a little disclaimer at this point. We must differentiate between the individual mental health challenge of anxiety, which a minority of individuals in every culture experience, and the systemic anxiety that our cultures, structures create. There are systems and structures in our world, right? I don't know if you know this, but when the stock market goes up and down, our grocery bills change. You and I have minimal control over recessions, because you didn't know that, right? Those are things beyond our control, but they impact us all. This isn't to say there aren't moments in life when we are all impacted by stuff around us, but how do we learn to live as a non-anxious presence in an anxious world? Edwin Friedman writes this, he has this quote, he says this, the anxiety in our culture is so deep within the emotional processes of our nation that it is almost as if neurosis has become nationalized. So what's that mean? Well, let's make it really simple. Have you noticed how there are people when you're around them, um, there's just like a peacefulness to them? When you're around them, like they just kind of, Whatever anxieties in the room or you have, they can kind of like absorb it for you. And it's like they just bring a presence that becomes a non-anxious presence. They, they just embody this like kind of lack of anxiety about the things of life. And, and not that they don't like work or eat food or whatever it is to take care of themselves. But, but they, just, they just live with this kind of constant like ease. Doesn't mean life is easy for them, but they, they just, everything's taken kind of in stride. The definition of what a non-anxious person looks like. The other side is, have you been around the person, like some of you might be going, "Mm, I don't don't like where he's going next, it's probably me. Have you been around the person that because of the anxiousness of their life, wherever they are, the anxiety in the room goes up? Like they're freaking out about everything you can possibly freak out about, and they're always like, well, what if they have this? What if it's that? What if, uh, you're like, oh my goodness, take a breath. It'll be okay. Right, maybe that's you. I'm not calling one out here today, but maybe that's you. Right, we're just anxious about everything. Like, this is why we have like, an, an epidemic of all kinds of things. Right? In fact, here's one of the realities for us. One of the issues we have um, 
is that we have what we call helicopter parents, and we even have like lawnmower parents who just run over the obstacles with their kids. Like those two kinds of things are actually increasing the anxiety in our children today. Sorry if that's you as a parent. Back up a half step. In fact, in our desire to remove barriers for our kids, we've actually given them false sense of worth and value. Not that they're not every person's valuable. Don't hear anything other than that. But we've made them. We've said things like this for a couple of generations now. You can be whatever you want to be. By the way. That isn't true. If you're not great at science and math, you cannot be an astrophysicist. Sorry. If you can't hear sound and pitch, you're probably not going to be a great musician. I know. It's true. Right? If you're not six foot eight and super athletic, you're not playing in the NBA. It's not going to happen. Right. Here's the reality. We don't like to say those kind of things because they might hurt people's feelings, but, but by being dishonest, we actually increase the anxiety in people's lives because they're trying to strive for something that they actually are probably not actually capable of doing. That doesn't ever say that our worth and our value is less because that is not true. What we begin to see is this. If we're not careful, we can increase the anxiety in others or we can become the non-anxious presence that decreases the anxiety in the lives of other people. And the world desperately needs more people like that because Jesus is the embodiment of being non-anxious. Jesus is the embodiment of being non-anxious. So how do we learn to live into that? And what does it look like for Jesus to do that, right? Jesus uses an analogy numerous times. He talks about a shepherd and his sheep. And he says over and over again, a shepherd... um, his sheep will know his voice. So when the shepherd speaks, if there's all kinds of competing voices in the world around us, which is always happening, right? In in the midst of competing voices, sheep will hear the voice of their shepherd above all the other noises, and that brings to them safety and security and hope and comfort, and it brings their anxiety down because sheep are dumb. It's probably also why Jesus calls us his sheep, just pointing that out. But, but we don't often listen well. We allow the competing voices to be what our ears are attuned to, and so we miss the voice of Jesus. But what we begin to find is this. When we learn to hear his voice, when we live in tune with his spirit, it brings down the anxiousness of our lives. It doesn't remove us from the things we've experienced or the difficulties we go through, but we find that his presence becomes more and more real. But sometimes... We feel like we may be disconnected from the Spirit, or we're having doubts, or we're wrestling with all kinds of things. That's a true for all of us. Right? That was also true for Thomas. Thomas, right, gets a bad rap. He's called Doubting Thomas, right? He has significant doubts. That is not a problem. In fact, he missed the moment Jesus had returned. All the other people are saying he returned, and he's missed the moment. So a week passes. Thomas is waiting for Jesus to show up, but he doesn't really believe the other guys. He can't really fault him, right? But Thomas gets a bad rap, and here's part of why. If you go back to chapter 11, you see this moment where Thomas is like, man, I will die for this guy. I'm just, like, expecting it. It's kind of what's coming, right? He's a revolutionary. He's leading to a revolution. I'm just going to die. All right, let's go to Jerusalem. Let's go die. Like, he was all in. He wasn't, like, afraid to be all in. But when they say he's resurrected from the dead and God's doing a new thing in a radical new way, in a way that the world has never known or seen or understand, he has doubts. Not unreasonable, by the way. 
But the story of Thomas epitomizes how Jesus is not intimidated or concerned with our doubts. He's not intimidated or concerned with our doubts. In fact, the people of God, the church, should be the place and the people where our doubts are most welcome. They should be a place where we can wrestle with any kind of conversation. It's welcome here because we're not worried because Jesus wasn't ever worried about the doubts or the struggles of other people or the concerns or the fears or the things that kept them from believing. He welcomed them and we should as well. But Thomas's biggest mistake wasn't his doubts. It was trying to navigate his grief and his life alone. Why wasn't he with the disciples? Because he was off grieving on his own in isolation. Right, here's the reality for us, that when life feels overwhelming, when our anxiousness increases and we go off on our, on our own, do you know that what happens is our anxiousness increases more? In isolation, what our fears and concerns and worries are, they just escalate. Like that's like, I mean, pretty every, every social scientist will tell you the same thing on that. But when we live in community and we're in conversation with people, we begin to other people help us have some perspective and we begin to see things a little bit differently and all of a sudden we recognize we're not alone. Even if we're the only one who've experienced what we've experienced, we're not alone in that experience because others are navigating it with us. So isolation, trying to go it alone, only increases our anxiety. When we find ourselves connected to the one who offers peace and to his people, we become more and more non-anxious people in the world. It's why he says these words, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, this is where it gets a little weird for us, right? He says, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, then they are not forgiven. I know it seems crazy, right? Because isn't God the one who forgives sin? Yes. God is the forgiver. I want to be clear on that. Don't miss that. But here's what we are trying to say. We don't offer forgiveness as God, but we do carry the message of forgiveness for God. All right, so I'll, I'll try to say that a little more clearly than this way. Um, when you've been around someone and they have come with like a repentant heart and they've come to God and they've said, God, will you forgive me? And, and there's no question in their mind and, and yours as you listen to them and they have a repentant heart, like, you and I can say to them in that moment, God forgives you. You are forgiven. I'm not forgiving for God, but I am his mouthpiece in that moment to share that message of hope that he offers us. The flip side is also true. When we're with a friend or someone we know, and they just keep doing the same dumb thing over and over again, they keep going, God, will you forgive me? Or, or they approach it this way. Well, I'll just ask God for forgiveness because he's going to forgive because that's who God is. But I plan to do the same thing again. We can say to that person just as well, Hey, um, if you have an unrepentant heart, if you're not really willing to be transformed, you're wasting your breath with a prayer. Because God doesn't respond to those prayers. With unrepentant hearts, God doesn't listen to that. He hears you, but he knows you don't actually mean it. So he's not going to extend to you your, his forgiveness. So we then are the mouthpiece in that moment. We're not saying we don't get to be the ones who choose whether God forgives or doesn't. That is not our job. But we do get to say... God responds to a repentant heart. And if you have a repentant heart, he does hear and he responds and receive his forgiveness. But if you and I want to live into cheap grace, which is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others have written about, or Paul talks about, well, should I keep going sinning? By no means, right? No, we don't continue to live in this way. We do want to be transformed and changed because that's what the resurrection of Jesus brings, new life. So the old can be gone, the new can come. We don't have to live into that pattern of living any longer. It's why 
What Jesus says is incredibly powerful. It's the role of the church to share the message of hope. Jesus' life, his words, and his teaching are shared through his church. That is you and I. I know if I was God, I would have picked a better way to do it. But this is how he chose to do it, through you and I. We're the ones called to be sent to share his message. But the temptation over time is for us to be wrapped up in our own lives in such a way that we are not as you go or as the Father sent me, I send you. No, our temptation is to be served up in our own lives that we're just thinking about us and we don't see the bigger perspective. And so the good news of the gospel of Jesus, we keep to ourselves because I don't want to offend anyone else but the hope that we can know new life. But what we find is throughout history, like God has worked in incredible ways among his people, right? There, there's, if we talk about just like... Um, Two events in American history, we talk about the, the First and Second Great Awakening, right? Guys like Jonathan Edwards or Francis Asbury or John Wesley were all part of some of these kind of things that happened during those two periods of time. But one of the powerful things was it wasn't so much about like this personal relationship with Jesus, right? We, we got disconnected. We, we talked about a revival every year that was just about me. And then we're shocked that radical things don't happen in our communities or in our homes. It's about my relationship with God and not about... This idea that God wants to transform the world. And so I love the words of Mark Sayers. He writes this, A worrisome introspection became normative as believers became more focused on their inner worlds than a world to be reached with the gospel. In other words, if we live in such a way that our faith is so wrapped up internally that it's never external, and what we're going to find again and again, it will increase our anxiety, not decrease our anxiety, because we'll be asking the question, am I good enough? Have I done enough? Rather than, am I so connected to God and his people that transformed life is what I know? The challenge for you and I is to be wrapped up inside ourselves and not see the goodness of cult. So as you go, live as a non-anxious presence in the world. Jesus was God's mouthpiece through his loving obedience to his Father. You and I are the mouthpieces of God through our loving obedience to his Son. But it is the empowering work of his Spirit that allows us to be the people he has called us to be. In a world that is riddled with anxiety, we have the ability to offer the non-anxious presence that only comes in knowing Jesus. So how do I live in tune with his spirit? We've talked about these things before. We'll continue to talk about them probably forever. We call them spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines, right? We spend time in prayer, in silence, in solitude, reading scripture, confession to one another and to God, time with each other, study, corporate worship. By the way, what you are doing right now helps reorient ourselves to who God is so that we don't live in isolation and allow it to be shaped, but, but being with actual tangible people in a way it helps us to be connected to his spirit. And so what's a simple way we can do this? I've talked about this before. We'll probably talk about it forever. Begin each day sitting intentionally with God. Begin each day sitting intentionally with God. Take five or ten minutes if it's a new rhythm for you. Sit in silence and solitude. Say, God, will you just speak to me today? We want me to be in tune with your spirit. May I sense your presence wherever I go. You're like, well, isn't God everywhere? Isn't there's no place? Yeah, there's nowhere you and I are going to go where God's presence is not already there. There's no place we go that he is absent. There's no place in this world that is God forsaken. No place. However, if we begin to live intentionally, we find we become more aware of his presence in all the places that we go. Our strength is not found in our individual rugged 
ruggedness or our ability to work hard on our own, but our strength is found in the work of his spirit among his people. Our ability to be non-anxious people in the world is found in our connection to Jesus and his spirit. And one of the things I love that John does in his gospel is he, he kind of ends his book right at, so, um, in the earliest manuscripts, chapter 21 wasn't a part of John's gospel. It stopped at chapter 20. It's why this, it's why that kind of ends in 20 here, and we're going to talk about that for just a second. But, but it's why John does such a cool thing, right? He ties the beginning of his book into the end of his book, and he does it with this passage, right? Here's the beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. If I were to stop for just a second right there, right? If I were to substitute these words, which I can do because it's what John is trying to get across. In the beginning was, so every time it says the Word, we could say Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We could say this, in the beginning, Jesus was there. And then this line, I don't want to miss, this is one of the most powerful lines in that whole text. In him was life, and that light, that life was the light of all mankind. This is the kind of life that offers us the ability to live as non-anxious people regardless of the world around us. This brings us back to how John ends this gospel in chapter 20. He writes this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. How to begin? In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. How does he end? By believing you may have life in his name. Jesus, the one who saves. Jesus, the one who is the Son of God. Jesus, the one who gives life. What kind of life? The kind of life that not even darkness itself can overcome. That when our anxieties and our worries and our fears exist, that not even those things can overcome the kind of life that Jesus comes to offer. Not even our grief or our sorrow. But Jesus comes to us that we can be so connected to his spirit that in the life we live, we can become the non-anxious people in an anxious world. And that is being sent by Jesus as the Father has sent him, so he sends us. What kind of message is it, right? I, I, I think one of the coolest things is we can preach the message of God's transformation just by our being non-anxious in an anxious world. Because that is revolutionary, by the way. It's why, then, that reminds us of what Peter writes when he writes this. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. How, in other words, can you live as a non-anxious person in an anxious world, in a complex world that you have no control? How do you live so non-anxiously? And you're like, well, I know Jesus. I'm connected to his spirit in such a way that he has transformed my life, that I know the light that leads to life, it overcomes even darkness. I know the one who's conquered even death itself, that fear 
has no dominion or no hold on me. I, I've experienced fear, but, but I live in the presence of God's Spirit in such a way that I become non-anxious in an anxious world. I'm so filled with the love of who God is that has transformed me and my home and my community and my workplace, and I am continually being transformed by the resurrected Jesus, and it is changing my life. That is how I live. That's how I give an answer to the joy and the hope that I have in the world in which we live. Our ability to be non-anxious is found in Jesus by the work of his Holy Spirit. In a world of rapid change, we talked about all the change that have taken place in my life and life of my grandmother, and there's many more that we could have talked about. In a world that is philosophically changed at different times throughout generations, we'll continue to do so until the day Jesus returns. In the midst of all of those things, the more connected to Jesus we are, more we allow him to shape our lives, then we do more and more what he asks us to do. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. May you and I receive the peace that Jesus offers. May we receive his Holy Spirit. And may we go with his message of hope that is and will be the transforming work of his love in the world around us. May you and I become more and more the non-anxious presence of God in the world. Father, will you help us today to become more and more your unique people? Will you help us to look and to sound and to act more like your son? Will you help us to be the kind of people who over and over again offer hope to people who feel like they are overwhelmed? May we recognize that there is a goodness that you bring that your spirit can work in and through us in such a way that we can be transformed. And for the moments we feel like we're the disciples who are gathered in the upper room, not sure what's going on, and we're anxious, and we're concerned, and we're scared. May you speak in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, the same word you spoke to them. Peace be with you. May we receive your spirit. And may it transform our hearts, and our minds, and our lives. May it allow us to offer graciousness to our kids, and to our coworkers, and to our neighbors, and to our friends. May we become the people who look and sound and act more and more like your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray.